The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS experience. Three, two, one. Hey, QTS experience listeners, it's Dave McCall. And today we've got a treat for you. It is my great honor and privilege to introduce and welcome our guest to the QTS experience uh, his biography and exceptional experience would take more than an entire podcast to do it justice. But suffice to say that Dr. Stephen Andriel is an academic giant, renowned technology executive for Fortune 100 companies, prolific author of 35 books, and a global public speaker. His background and experience is incredible, focusing on the development, application, and management of information technology and analytical methodology to problems in government and industry. In a nutshell, Dr. Andriel's career has been on technology innovation, the optimization and management of technology and technology adaption, deployment, and support best practices. It's impossible to describe it all here. I'll have more in the comments below, but I know we're gonna to touch on some of it today. So join me in welcoming Dr. Andriel. I apologize, sir, for the oversimplification of your background, but it is absolutely incredible. So I'm blushing, and uh, it also it also reflects clearly my age. So that's another variable here. But you know, in any case, when you have long bios like that, it's like, oh my God, this guy. How old is this guy? So uh, we'll, we'll just stop there with those two references. Look, we'll just yeah, you look amazing. So uh, we'll just move on. Hey, I uh, I know we're going to dive into a bunch of things. One of my absolute passions is talking about innovation. The world's changing and innovating in so many ways so quickly. But before we do that, in your bio, we didn't talk about it. Um, you had a relationship with DARPA, which is the Defense uh, Advanced Research Projects Agency. And I'm not sure most of my listeners know what that agency is. Can you describe it a little bit and what your role was there? Yeah, DARPA is a is the think tank for the Pentagon, which goes well beyond that. It creates lots of technologies, and then it then it kind of enables the rest of the uh, the world to commercialize it, which is a unique model. Um, so every, your listeners know about the internet that came from DARPA, GPS, DARPA, um, the mouse way back when, DARPA, um, stealth technology, DARPA. I mean, a lot of the autonomous vehicles. In fact, DARPA has recently launched a subfinder. Um, and killer, uh, completely autonomous. So they do all sorts of amazing things. Wow. And then they essentially turn it over to the commercial industry and say, well, go make something of it because we're done here. We apply it to military and now we're done with it. My role way back when was um, as director of what they then called the Cybernetics Technology Office. And we actually did some of the very early funding in AI and machine learning, a lot in natural language processing, um, a lot in graphical interfaces, uh, a lot in crisis forecasting, crisis management. So we we really did, uh, we, I mean, DARPA is just, it's, it's it, when you say DARPA, you have to understand it's the program managers and they're genius contractors. So yeah. one quick example before we get into it is, and I think the most important thing we funded in our office was MIT's Media Lab. So, which was then way back then called the Architecture Machine Group. And that was Nick Negroponte and a bunch of people like that. So, yeah, the genius of DARPA is, of course, finding the ideas, yes, but also finding the people to execute on the ideas. doesn't get any better than the Media Lab at MIT. Wow. Why, why is that? What made them special? Oh, the people, what they were doing. They were doing spatial database management, graphical, graphical interfaces. They were doing a lot of the, you know, we had a video that was 
basically geo, um, basically not autonomous, but people driving using interactive maps in Aspen 30, 40, 50 years ago. Mm. I mean, and also the people, people, a leadership time of the architecture machine group was Nick Negroponte and that they don't come any better than that and his team. So yeah, it's a combination of the innovation going on at the place and then the leadership and the creative ideas coming from the place. So it's a combination, a lot like VCs. Mm. In fact, I think of DARPA as a kind of VC. It, it is, you know, sometimes it's this weird juxtaposition. I, I served in the military. Um, I saw that, you know, the military, uh, I haven't worked for the federal government, but I've worked for a university. And in many ways, in the regular line units, in your regular day-to-day working for a public entity, it seems very structured. I wouldn't think this is a particular place of innovation. There's hard work, there's genius and execution, but you know, the military doesn't want you to go off, at least not airborne infantry, to, to do your own thing and really think outside the box. Um, other than that's an oversimplification, you know, you're adjusting to a very tactical, immediate situation. And yet when I listen to you describe DARPA or I think about it, read about it, it, it has to have almost like the skunk works mentality, this, yeah. uh, you know, kind of matrix. So when you think about it and you think about innovation, how, how is it that they're able to pull that off that completely different way of thinking of things? Well, that's the whole structure, right? So what's interesting about DARPA, I think the two, and again, there's some similarity to VCs here. First of all, it's other people's money, right? So oh. you, you have the advantage of being funded every year fairly generously by Congress, who's because of their reputation now, will fund DARPA. They will always fund DARPA um, because of its accomplishments. But I think one of the most important lessons for me was that, and I experienced this myself, the cost of failure is not high. Mm. So you're allowed to come up with crazy ideas. And the crazier the idea, almost, almost the better, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, they can't be Completely. Right. I remember people in a waiting room wearing tinfoil hats. <laughs> That's true. I mean, it can't be kind of crazy, crazy stuff. On the other hand, I mean, they really want you to push. So the vision is important. So, right. you know, where will we be in 10, 20, 30, 40 years? Right. And if you come up with something that may be fundable, maybe not, but doesn't yield immediate results, it's okay. Right. And that's that, unlike companies. Right. Where if you're running an internal innovation group, even CVC, corporate venture capital, mm -hmm. and your track record really sucks, good luck with that. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you may get one or two of those massive failures, especially if they're expensive, and then you're out the door. Right. Um, at DARPA, that's not the case. If you were really pushing it hard and you made some, you know, some modest achievements and there was still some promise, keep going. Mm -hmm. I mean, just keep going. Do you have to defend your ideas? Of course. Mm -hmm. Is there a business case ar around the idea? Of course. You have to pitch that to the, I used to think of it as upstairs, of course. Um, but it's not, it's not the same. You're mm -hmm. allowed to fail. When you think about innovation, before we dive into it, because I want to spend some, a lot of time, really, most of our time on this area, how, how would you define it? If you're, I know it seems self-evident, but I found that outside the techno techno nerd world, that they're not really we're not always working on the same from the same lexicon. So when you describe or you think of innovation, you wanted to describe it to somebody 
um, that doesn't think about it often. How would you describe innovation? So I describe innovation as being around the product or a service, mm -hmm. right? Um, I describe it, and that's, this, I'm building a matrix now, product service, right? Mm -hmm. Incremental, modernization, disruptive, mm. right? So are you disrupting a product or service? Or are you just incrementally improving it? Mm. And so DARPA is more about disruption mm -hmm. than anything else. Corporations, in my view, and based on research that we've conducted, even though they talk disruption, are much more about incremental and modernization-based yeah. innovation. Because again, the incentives are not aligned properly. And there's a whole series of issues around that, which we can discuss, mm -hmm. but they're really more committed to incremental. They let risk is lower and all the rest of it mm -hmm. than disruptive. So when they talk about digital transformation, right? Using you know, various digital technologies to reinvent their business models, most of them aren't really serious about that. They want the PR around it, but they're not willing to put the bucks, right? Or the commitments to it. Right. And that's why many of these projects fail, by the way. And most of these projects do fail. The vast majority, some other research we've conducted, the overwhelming majority of technology projects, including innovation projects, I would argue, especially innovation projects, fail. So if you're living in that world, what the hell is going on? I mean, it's, it's and there are good answers to that question. Well, well, let's, I mean, I was going to ask why is innovation so difficult, but I guess they're kind of tied together. It seems though, when you talk about that, they're failing, isn't that, isn't that sort of, I don't want to say it's the goal of innovation, but it is the process of innovation. I mean, I'm thinking about every major thing, at least it comes to my mind from flight to GPS to uh, the the iPhone. I mean, nobody bought the freaking TiVo except for me. And it was mm -hmm. so ridiculously complicated. Now I would love it. But then where's the simple ones? I guess my question is, wh why do you think they keep failing um, now when um, and is that different than um, in the past? So that's a great question because it speaks to who are we talking about? Okay. Which kinds of companies are we talking about? So when I talk about major projects, whether they're technology projects, digital transformation projects, including, of course, innovation projects, I'm talking about when large companies, especially large public companies, mm -hmm. try to do this, this kind of work. That's where most of the failure occurs. It does not occur in the startups venture world where failure is expected, mm -hmm. to your point where they're not expected to get it right. They want everyone to get it right immediately. And that's why I said a few moments ago, DARPA was more like VC world mm. than it is like large corporate world. It's the antithesis of large public corporations, believe me, right? So when you start talking about failure, you're talking about you know, the traditional metrics, which were not the right metrics for startups. Traditional metrics means the projects failed to meet their deadlines and they cost too much. That's a metric that large companies love to apply to these projects. Um, and that's not the metrics that are applied at DARPA, as we discussed, right. nor are they the metrics that apply to small companies or startups, mm -hmm. where, again, obviously, the investors would like them to succeed as quickly as possible, but they understand that they may not. Right. And that's OK in that world. So there's a very important distinction. Right. So we've got incremental modernization based disruptive process services. And now you've overlaid, which I like, the whole idea of, well, who are we talking about? Big companies, small companies, startups, big public companies. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the database of failure, it's mostly with these big companies, 
mostly big public companies, right? So, mm-hmm. and we can talk about the reasons why that's the case. And as you're starting to describe why it's it's not the case, and in fact, somewhat expected in the smaller companies, especially the startups. Well, that's a great point. I guess I had, I, in fact, I, I hadn't thought about that. The, the ones that I'm thinking of were either government oriented, um, the space race, Concords, yeah. things like that, where it was, if we fail, we, by failure, not the experiments along the way, but if we don't have an outcome that's successful, we lose. It, you know, my children have no idea of the Cold War or even in my uh, dad's era of, look, we had drills of hiding under desks. We had drills of, and if we don't develop the technology necessary, real or imagined, to defend ourselves against our global adversaries, there is a real outcome. Or they were small entrepreneurial innovators like the Wright brothers and whoever that just despite all odds and all predictive, they just kept going and they were successful. Those groups in between that you're talking about, I absolutely agree with you that um, there's not necessarily, it might appear there's an incentive, but not necessarily is there an incentive for them to um, fail regularly that, that doesn't seem to work in their culture. Well, we're also speaking to the relationship between structure and outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. So companies, and this tends to be the case in large companies, regardless of public or private, they love to structure things. Yeah. They love to say, well, this is the process, step one, two, and we'll, and at the out, and, and the other end, we'll pop out innovation, right? Or, right. or you know, it, even the more modest ones, right? An, an MVP, right? right? An minimum viable product, that'll pop out. But we can manage this, right? And we can fund it at this level. Maybe we'll give it a 3% incremental increase in the budget, and we'll have a 3% incremental increase in MVPs at the end of the year. It's nonsense. Right? <laughs> that kind of thinking is complete nonsense. No, seriously. I mean, it's it's really spaghetti against the wall. See what sticks. I mean, that's that's DARPA. That's VCs. That's a lot of these organizations that invest in innovation, disruptive innovation, right? right. Um, truly disruptive innovation. And big companies find it very difficult to do that. And they mostly find it difficult to do that for you know there are other reasons. I mean, it's it's right. a lot of. Oh, gee, uh, how crude can we be here? I guess very crude, right? Well, it's a it's a corporate podcast. <laughs> no, so no, I didn't mean I didn't mean, I didn't mean bad language. I meant sort of cutting to the chase of. Let's reason. cut to the chase. All right, so it's it's greed. Yeah. Right. So I mean, if you're sitting in a big company, and I've sat in a big company, and somebody comes in and says, I've sat in several, and someone comes in and says, you know, we should disrupt the business model, because we don't believe, and we have evidence to suggest. The business model is not viable over the next three to five years. We think there'll be significant competitions coming from the left, coming from the right, bottom, top. Right. We're toast here. Right. So we really need to reimagine and reinvent. Right. Well, the pushback, which I've personally experienced, is have you lost your mind? Right. right? Because, and, and I'm thinking, you can almost see them writing down, you know, second home, <laughs> uh, college education for the kids. I mean, all these sorts of things that would be, you know, if, if it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. Kind of thing. So there's a, there's a real resistance inside companies to, you know, to somehow anyway, interrupt the gravy train. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. And there's always uncertainty about what I just said, you know, the business model is going to be disrupted. Well, who said, and mm-hmm. they're not always right. So we're not going to turn this business upside down because of that. But the main reason is I'm pulling in X number of dollars a year, and I don't want any risk applied to that compensation equation. Leave it alone. 
And as long as we're doing okay, plus let's remember that many of these executives already have a perspective of short-term tenure. Mm -hmm. They don't expect to be there in 20 years. Mm -hmm. They don't expect to be there in 10 years. They expect to kind of optimize their positions of power, relationship building, and money for three to five years, Mm. maybe seven, depending on the culture of the company. Um, And therefore, it's even more ridiculous for them to upset the apple cart over the next three to five years when they're going to be in their prime of earning and power and relationship building. So a lot of it has to do with the people. Honestly, it does. Um, There's also an awful lot of you know, the pushback against disruptive innovation is because there's, there's, we all know this, there's an arrogance of market share. Mm-hmm. Right? So if I've got, you know, a large percentage of the market and I'm doing really well, you know, then you get into confirmation bias and everything else. Like, you know, just tell me things that, that, that make me feel better about what I'm doing, because look at my market share, I'm doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, there's that. There's a suspicion around all these forecasts about how things are going to change. And then for public companies, it gets even worse. You know, balance sheet management, quarterly, right? So if I don't report good quarterly earnings, my stock price could be affected. So I am absolutely incentivized to do that. I mean, the only person in the world that ever got away with that was, was Bezos and Amazon, right? When they basically told the street, uh, don't expect us to make any money. We're going to reinvest in all this stuff. We'll try uh-huh. that with most companies. We're going to lose a lot of money over the next 10 quarters. Don't worry about it. In fact, give us a buy rating, uh-huh. um, right? That never works, hardly ever works. So executives C-suites are very sensitive to this relationship between innovation and valuation. And I mean, I've seen this a lot, you know, like what will happen? I've I've been in rooms where people will say, if we do, if we announce this, um, we will, the stock price will suffer, Mm -hmm. period. Well, how much will it suffer? It could get down five points, five points. Are you kidding? I mean, I'm going to exercise options next month. Right. It's (laughs) that kind of craziness. It sounds crazy, but it's happening. Maybe not as overtly as that. Right. Clearly it's, it's a variable in people's thinking. Well, let me ask you this. You started off, the premise was somebody comes into the room, somebody comes out of the office of the CTO or, or an analyst or whatever comes in and says, if we don't, here's the consequence, right? You, I think the way you say it is we're going to get our lunch ate, that we're, we're going to lose um, whatever, market share, we're going to lose our opportunity, we're going to lose something. And it it seems like if they're able to persuade the organization that that's true, people pivot. If they aren't able to persuade them to be true, that to be true. So, so is it in that initial message and the analytics around it, or is it that in spite of all evidence, to, all evidence to the contrary, we're going to stay on this path come hell or high water? Well, two things. It depends on how compelling the evidence is and the source of that evidence right mm-hmm. so if it comes from certain sources it may be more it may be more credible in the minds of the c-suite than others clearly they all have their favorites mm-hmm. um but i also think there's another variable here i think i think if you're doing pretty well by definition the evidence is less credible mm-hmm. less credible our research which we did several years ago indicated that the greatest motivation for pivot your word good word was fear Oh, yeah. So when market share starts to drop or you see competitors you sort of heard of but haven't really heard much about all of a sudden taking market share, 
and you get scared mm-hmm. and you're getting scared for the same reason, there goes the second home, mm-hmm. then things will change. Um, but fear was, I think, the second most important variable, you know, in terms of change. I mean, I think it wasn't it wasn't these forecasts of the market's going to change. But if you look at you look at many companies who I mean, what happened? What really happened at at Blockbuster, right? Mm-hmm. And Blackberry and GE and you know Xerox and the Xerox. list is long. Right. Yeah, the, the IBM. The list IBM. is a long list, you know. And uh, clearly, there were people in the room telling them. Um, especially in the case of Blockbuster, you know, yeah. that's a perfect example. Like, you know, the technology is changing here, folks, right. and people are not going to want to get in their car and drive and all the rest of it. I mean, w- wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall during those conversations? Um, I, I would have. They probably would have swatted me because I would have been screaming <laughs> from the ceiling, get rid of rewind fees. I'll bet you I could afford to put four kids through college on just the rewind fees I had to pay Blockbuster, but I'm not still irritated by that. I can tell. <laughs> yes, I can tell. Yeah. So I think there's a number of variables that, that come into play. Obviously, it's the imp- the balance, the, the quarterly balance sheet management practice. Mm-hmm. There's the fear issue. There's how well we're doing. Um, there's pressure on the stock if you're a public company. There's all of these things. And then, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in C-suites about what it really means. I mean, where did Airbnb come from? Could that have been something that that Marriott threw out maybe, I don't know, threw out meaning doing? Right. I mean, we always have questions like that. And again, you know, this company does very well. So why would they change things back to the central premise? Don't upset the apple cart. So I think there's a lot of reasons why large companies find it difficult to innovate. Um, I, I also, and therefore, I recommend, I've always felt this, go outside. Mm. So in other words, you know, have an aggressive M&A strategy. So, and then keep the company kind of pop, kind of private, not private, but keep it kind of separate. Don't right. let the big company stuff infect the new one right. and, and let them go do their thing. And now you own them. So now you have a vested interest in allowing them to do their thing or to hire some, you know, some companies to innovate on your behalf. I mean, one of the things that you've seen is, is, corporate right headquarters will separate the innovation people from corporate and mm-hmm. they'll put them somewhere else right so walmart labs is somewhere else and i think that's 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 a kind of homage to yeah we don't do this so good at corporate so we better get these people away um, so you've changed the incentives you've changed the location you've changed the changed the metrics for success as we discussed before and all of those things they hope will lead to greater innovation, especially disruptive innovation. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's an approach that big public companies have taken. Is it a good approach? Yes, it is. And I would add to that the M&A piece of this. So just acquire some of the more innovative companies in your space, knowing that it may not, they may not work out and that's okay. Now we're back to the metrics for success. Don't overpay. All the due diligence issues apply. Sure. But nevertheless, you know, start thinking outside the box, which means literally outside the company. And that, I think, is also hard for companies. You also create, and this is a very corporate insight, you also create a sort of new list of people to blame. I mean, really? It, oh, yeah. I mean, so I hired these consultants to innovate. And they screwed up, you know. I, uh, we're we're going to replace them with some other ones that are more creative. You know, it wasn't me. I had the brilliant idea of bringing some outside people in, but they just failed to execute. Yeah. So let's execute them. That, uh, we've, we've all been in that conversation a million times. Yeah. Right? So I hired these people to do the strategy. They screwed it up. We'll hire some other people. It wasn't me. It wasn't my team. 
Right. And so there's another political aspect to moving things outside. Well, I've quick comment, but then I've got a question. When you're talking about um, do it outside, it reminds me, one of my favorite cars when I was a kid was the 280Z, the Datsun 280Z. Um, The 77, 78, my brother-in-law at the time raced uh, slalom in Southern California. They'd, you know, these car clubs would set up these tracks and that car, you could, I never did it, but I saw one with a Chevy 350 in it and it was better balanced. Like these cars were just there's to me as a kid in Southern California in the late seventies, early eighties, such a beautiful implementation. And later I was shocked to learn that, well, they're not really Datsun, it's Nissan. And when I talked to somebody that was closer to the story, they said, you know, Nissan didn't want to have the shame of failing in America. And so they created a different name Datsun sent them off. You go figure it out. You know, you crazy, innovators um that little b210 and whatever we'll see if that ever works 30 years later they came and said all right we got this you know we'll 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 go back to the big family name is that kind of what you mean when you say absolutely outside it's a great example of it i mean companies are protecting themselves all the time because they fear that you know their good brand could in some way be damaged by this so that's that's sort of under this umbrella called someone else to blame yeah um, in your story it's dots and and there are other lots of other stories i think it's a good corporate approach for large companies i mean i think because they're so again if you're okay with incremental back to our early matrix incremental innovation you know tiny things then fine and if if by making incremental innovative changes you're able to increase your market share and your profitability then that's a path you may want to stay on. You will not be able to stay on it permanently, but it's a path you may want to temporarily stay on. My argument would be, though, with the pace of change and where innovation is coming from, especially digital innovation, digitally enabled innovation, you're not going to be on that path for long. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at healthcare as a perfect example. I mean, there are companies that are coming out of nowhere that are marrying IoT slash wearables with AI, machine learning, and they're doing kind of real-time diagnostics and they're reporting back. The real problems with the old you know, legacy databases, getting those to interact. Right. But beyond that, I mean, you're like, wow. I mean, you know, remote concierge medicine, what the hell is that, right? That's I mean, literally what I have. Um, I had a double pulmonary embolism uh, a couple years ago, thank goodness I survived. But um, back to your, I was thinking about that when you talked about fear for change. Like my wife, been married 34 years. Congrats. She's very, thank you. She's half Japanese and half Irish. So I always have to be respectful, not just my love, but she'll come at me like a spider monkey. I'm 6'3, <laughs> I'm very large dude, and um, she is a dangerous lady. I, I say that to say for 20 years, she has been at me since about we, we had kids late in our marriage. Like we started, I started getting thicker and thicker and thicker. I didn't, was not the airborne infantry guy she married. <laughs> and um, she kept asking me to change. Well, then I had the embolism and you're sitting there thinking most people don't recover from this. How have I been given by the universe um, this opportunity? And I had plenty of knowledge. I had all the analytics reports about age and weight and um, diet and exercise. And I didn't change until that guy walks in and gal walks in and said, see all these spots. These are clots all throughout your lungs. See this spot instead of pink, it's black. Cause you have these big things on either side of this 
valve in your heart. And if you had gotten on that plane in 30 minutes, that would have been the last thing you would have thought of. And, you know, you go through this, you're like, wow, fear has caused me to change and continue to accelerate change. And I use IoT devices. I carry a little EKG reader. I've got my um, eye thing that's tracking all my vitals and it's kind of correlating it. So fear's changed me. I guess what I'm curious about is you talk about this, like, Today, you're a professor at Villanova. You're tenured, I believe, at both Drexler and George Mason in the, and, and certainly been a professor there. As you talk to your students, and some of them will be next generation leaders in corporate America and maybe academia, why, why is there resistance to management to look at the Bezos model or the Dotson model or to other organizations? Heck, I'm not, we don't make this an infomercial, but in my company back in 2018, we said, look, while these products and services in our managed IT portfolio played a great role, the public cloud has changed everything. We're going to set those aside and we're going to focus on hyperscale data centers with massive data sets, high connectivity, where most eyeballs are in the world. And this is the place that we're going to play, the, the role that we're going to play. But we have to jettison this stuff. If we don't, our CFO said it, and many others said it, we're, we're at least not going to be competitive and the results may be much more dire than that. So how are you training the next generation or being part of the next generation of leaders to think differently? Or is it just once you become a leader in a corporate environment that just you inherit this resistance to innovation? Let me start with the back first. There is some inheritance of that because it is tied to compensation and money is extremely important in the US, right? Yeah. Everything's rewarded based on how much money you have. Let's, let's be honest. Right. Um, you know, if you're brilliant but incredibly poor, you won't get very far. Yeah. So there's that. So right. that Warren is Buffett part of says it. that as well. So there's a warping that does happen. But right. back to my students, okay, yeah. I'm teaching two courses right now. Right. One is AI and machine learning. Mm -hmm. And the other is emerging business technologies. Mm. So we are all over what you just said. All right. Now, remember, these are Gen Z. Okay. This is Gen Z. It's not that difficult to convince Gen Z that, for example, machine learning will eventually dominate and take over healthcare. Mm -hmm. They get it. Okay. Uh, they clearly get it. Mm -hmm. um, Gen A, that's coming up, Alpha, mm -hmm. 2010 to 25, they will be not just using the internet, they'll be immersed in it. Their lives will be inseparable from it, mm -hmm. right? How they play, how they shop, how they get entertained with immersive entertainment experiences, all of the above. Okay. So I think generational changes are important, right? You're talking about, you've made several references, you know, to back in the seventies and things of that nature, seventies yeah. and eighties. I don't want to date you too much, <laughs> but we'll call it eighties and nineties and make you feel better. Sure. Okay. Yeah, all right. But, but I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of generational change. And I think, you know, so leadership becomes a variable. So I, I do a column for IEEE IT Pro called Life in the C-Suite. And I'm always writing about some of these issues because I had experiences with old and young C-Suites, right? The young being, of course, the startups. I've done a lot of that work, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, investing in all the like and sitting on boards. And it's like another world from sitting in a place like Cigna. I mean, it's another world, right. literally. Um, and so it, it's like, you know, um, I, I think change just naturally occurs. I have a phrase for this. I call it natural organic attrition, right? And otherwise it means when people die. Mm -hmm. So when people <laughs> move out and then the new generation comes in. So to your point, I don't think 
it's going to be nearly as difficult to convince Gen Z, Gen A, and subsequent generations about the the imperative, the the role that digital technology will play. Mm -hmm. I mentioned healthcare. It's a perfect example. You've got sort of conventional healthcare, but then you've got this new science emerging over here, which is DNA-based, right? Mm, So then you start thinking, okay, what if I took the conventional databases and I married it with the individual DNA? Now we're talking real personalized medicine. If I married that with the DNA, would, would the treatment be any different? So now we're looking at new correlations. And the new correlations are, they're achieved through, you know, immediate machine learning. So now we're looking at these relationships. So if, then, if, and, and, then, right? And I think, you know, that's where the change occurs. Now, all this change will only be accepted, will only be accepted if, in fact, there's a viable business model behind it. So you got to make money. I mean, as cool as that sounds, you got to make money. So that's where these new companies will come from, because, um, and this is this is one of the great ironies of healthcare in the U.S. Without getting into any political controversy, if you want true universal healthcare, the machines will give it to you. It will mm-hmm. not be the government. In other words, if I want to level the playing field, then you're wearing devices, you're wearing wearables now. Mm-hmm. If I can, if I can produce inexpensive wearables, which we are doing right now. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're embedded in other wearables like. Right, watches and the like. Mm-hmm. If I can do all of that, then I can I can basically offer as a business service a low cost correlation mm-hmm. that says, given your vitals, given your lifestyle. Oh, how do I know that? I'm tapping into your social media accounts. I know what you buy. I know what you eat. I know how you entertain yourself. I know how much exercise you do. Mm-hmm. I know all this about you. Here's mm-hmm. what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Or better, you better get a checkup in this area. Um, I don't need to go to a physician for that. Especially to your point, if you can, if I've submitted my DNA to your point earlier, Mm -hmm. and this thing can, you know, securely check, I have 10,000 voodoo dolls or 10 million voodoo dolls of similar genetic background, and I'm able to correlate this stuff. Here is very specific things based upon this stuff. I think that's where you're, what you're talking about. Absolutely. So, you know, in conventional medicine, you're in a pool where they'll look at the medication that has worked for large groups of people. So when you go into DNA driven medicine, now you're talking about the pool plus you. Right. Now you're right now you're a class of one. And I think that's where it's going to change. But most importantly, you mentioned the data. It's the accessibility of the data. The irony is we scream about privacy as we should. Right. But access to much of this data is is really important for these correlations yeah and you know like sort of you know where you shop and what you buy yeah i mean that's really an important thing you know i know it, basically the machine is saying i know what you eat it's unhealthy right i know i know given your dna as well as being in that larger conventional pool you're going to die at age 52 right so i mean so what do you want to do here I mean, it's, it's, and all that, remember the viable universal healthcare model occurs because you don't have to go to a physician for this, right? You don't have to make an appointment. You don't have to, I mean, you got it right there. That could be, I don't know, that could be a very viable business model. Um, There's a concierge, you mentioned concierge service. So I mentioned it and you said, that's what I have. Yeah, I do. The concierge model is fascinating because there are some new companies. One is Am I I allowed to mention companies' names? Yeah, absolutely. Not pushing them. But a friend of mine recently introduced me to a company called Wild Health. And Wild Health Mm -hmm. is doing exactly that. It's Mm -hmm. a virtual concierge service that is marrying conventional data, test data, glucose, those sorts of things, thyroid, Mm -hmm. to DNA. Mm -hmm. 
So now it's like, wow, this true, this is real personalized medicine, right? Yeah. Real personalized medicine. So I'm thinking, well, now it's it's not inexpensive, right? Right. But it will it, that will become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Yep. So there you go. I mean, that's, well, my, that, that's disruptive. I, it is. I'm an early adopter. Um, I have a concierge physician. Thank goodness I do. Um, or I would have uh, I would have not been here to do this podcast for sure. It is not particularly, it's not inexpensive. It's not the same as uh, tuition I just paid um, in this starting semester for <laughs> some kids, but it is, um, it's important. It's all where you spend your money. I, I, you know, God, there's so many places and I know we're limited on time, but as you, as you're working through this um, and you're talking about AI and you're talking about machine learning, but back to innovation and just getting the mindset of people. It reminds me of um, Steve Jobs and whether hard to work with, easy to work with, there's been a lot of conversation, but I heard somebody on a podcast a few months ago that really blew my mind. And he was a chip maker at, at Apple at the time. I believe he was part of the chip ma uh, making process. And he's been at another number of organizations, genius guy. And the person that was interviewing him said, you know, what, what was it like to work with Steve? You know, we hear all these stories and he's like, look, Steve was chaos. And he talked about how he brought in and really brought chaos. And in the, in this guy was speaking from the perspective of software development. He said, was that a bug or that was a feature? And this guy said, it was a feature. It, chaos was a feature. What do you mean? It was a feature. And he said, look, chaos by itself isn't particularly productive. And so we bring structure to chaos. We do these other things. And now all of a sudden you're, you're outputting, right? You've harnessed the energy of chaos and you're, you got to output, but at some point, and I'd never heard this, I'm sure you're well aware of it. Once as an organization grows, you know, sure. In the beginning, you've got this curve that goes up and to the right, but at some point, the weight of organization and bureaucracy catches up and it curves it. And inevitably civilizations, companies, relationships, whatever, you know, if you take the spice out of a relationship, if you take the chaos completely out, it can't be completely disorganized. It does this. And so the Steve Jobs 2.0 was they kind of tried to keep manage enough organization, but not too much to harness the chaos. And he said, when you think about it, were there a computer company who figures out how to make this music player who figures out how to make smart like these other things and tim cook recently said on uh kramer's program i think it was on cnbc said look in 20 years i want apple to be a healthcare company not a computer company and so i have high hopes wherever where that actually ends up that people are thinking like that the ceos thinking like that organizations are thinking like that but it sounds like in your experience most of the larger organizations, not these small ones that we've talked about or these outliers, they haven't yet, there's still heavy resistance. People of you know, mid, late fifties of my age or whatever, maybe there's um, resistance to making real change. So, yes. So you know, this whole idea of chaos is, is a good metaphor for sort of what's happening or not happening in larger companies. So that's why companies will in fact move physically move their innovators away from corporate because there's no tolerance for chaos because remember quarterly earnings all the rest of it right so that's how you win in that world you're in that world 
On the other hand, if you want disruptive innovation, you better have some chaos and you better encourage it. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about DARPA. Well, DARPA is, even though when you go to the Hill and you testify and all the rest of it, it (laughs) sounds great. Trust me, it's chaos. And it needs to be. At least when I was there, it was chaos. And I loved it. And I understood it. And that's why I said it's spaghetti against the wall. See what sticks. Right. Right. Um, You don't know what's going to stick. So you move your corporate innovators away from corporate where they'll be infected by, you know, the the chaos killers. Right. Use your metaphor and where they can they can explore ideas. I mean, small companies, startups do this all the time. I mean, the meetings there have no structure whatsoever. Right. I mean, I can't remember. I mean, I was on the board of, you know, 15 or 20 startups over the years. And, you know, agendas, really, are you kidding? You know, people just come in and just start talking about things and start right. fighting. And our, it's like amazing, right? You get the agenda literally, and it's usually a bad agenda. They don't even follow it. You get it like the night before, like, you know, three hours before the meeting. It's like that kind of stuff. And whereas, you know, they get a pub in a large company, the agenda is published, share with shareholders. I mean, it's crazy. There's a statement that comes at the end, right? The right. earnings report is all, all documented. It's, again, that's a good example of sort of the, the you know, chaos to non-chaos, to structure. Structure doesn't work for innovation. It just mm-hmm. doesn't. Now, that's my view of it, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think that when somebody gets stuck in a startup, they'll say to people, you know, go to Hawaii for a month, will you? It's mm-hmm. crazy, right? Go to Hawaii for a month and just walk on the God, excuse me, the beaches. Right. And then and then maybe you'll come back with some good ideas. Right. And, and that would never happen in a big company. Yeah. I... Well, they've sent me to Hawaii before. I don't know that I came back with any big <laughs> ideas, but let's keep that between ourselves. Right. Hey, um, so as we're talking, I'm thinking almost exclusively in like the way I would because I live in the West. I'm part of Western civilization. I participate in um, companies that are founded um, in the U.S. or you know, with Western philosophy. You were talking about AI and machine learning, which is a huge, we don't have time to talk about it in depth today, although I would love to have you on um, to talk about it in particular. But a friend of mine who's recently retired from the FBI talks about this idea of an arms race. He said to me one time, Dave, when was the last time you heard of some of these big nations launching aircraft carriers or running them through sea trials? Like really doing that, as opposed to really getting good in the areas of artificial intelligence and machine learning and data analytics and automation and facial recognition and all of these other things. And, and I'm not here to denigrate any particular country or whatever, but his, his, what he said was what we think a lot about is not so much bank robbers. What we think about is how do we protect our citizens from, um, agencies that come up, basically DARPAs in other places that are thinking about and may not be restricted in the same way. You know, in our military, we're, we have these guiding principles, accomplish the mission, troop welfare. And then you operate between the Geneva Convention and the military uniform code of military justice following lawful orders. It's kind of the, when it works well, that's the circle. Not everybody around the world plays by those rules. Heck, we don't always play by them ourselves. And I'm a proud vet of the United States that I love very much, but we don't always follow that perfectly. But that's our guiding principle. That's what our professional soldiers um, are taught. 
And I'm thinking about arms race in the air, these areas and how they're applying innovation and how they're thinking about it. And I'm not, I'm not sure we're keeping up. I love to listen to the hyperscalers, the, the really big ones. I'm friends with a lot of those folks and we have a lot of conversations and they're really cool, innovating people. But I'm wondering if as a, as a civilization or as a country, do we have the same um, uh, commitment? What do, you, what do you think in your research? So we know empirically that we're not spending as much on AI and machine learning as the Chinese are. Okay. So that's pretty well documented. Sure. And, and so we know that. Then the question is, well, what do you do about that? Because, you know, let's separate the military application of AI and machine learning from the consumer application of AI and machine learning. So okay. on the military side, um, we're not spending as much, but where we are spending it, I think we're spending it in the right places. We're spending okay. it on drones, autonomous vehicles, cybersecurity. Right. And I think some of those areas, many of those areas, uh, will actually translate to consumer side, right? So robotics certainly will, drones certainly will. You can all imagine all of us on the podcast can imagine, um, you know, the applications of these technologies, and of course the importance of cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more that the nature of warfare, which is a form of competition, mm -hmm. is exactly like changing competition in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. So instead of being hit by another aircraft carrier that's launching. Mm -hmm planes from God knows where, mm -hmm. we're going to be hit with, as we know, data breaches, data security issues. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing's true of large corporations who believe that, in effect, their aircraft carrier is going to protect them, i.e. the market share. They're going to get hit with by innovators coming up with brand new ideas that will mm -hmm. disrupt their business models. So, you know, are we spending enough in the right places? I don't think in general we're spending enough, whether that's military or corporate. Mm -hmm. And I think while we're starting to show signs of spending it in the right, right directions, um, not enough as well. I mean, back to the conversation about you know, incremental versus disruptive uh, innovation. And mm -hmm. I think places like DARPA is where you're going to find a lot of that pushing of the thought and the future and all the rest of it. And that's why it's so, I strongly believe, so vital to the country. Mm -hmm. I think you need, I mean, the National Science Foundation does great work too. But there's lots of places in the government that, I mean, DARPA just gets all the publicity, well-deserved, I would add, mm -hmm. um, but it uh, gets all the publicity because of the amazing work that it does in those areas, drones, autonomous vehicles, cybersecurity, and so forth. So I, I think, you know, do we need to acknowledge the fact that this is a arms race? Absolutely. I mean, you know, in the, in the two presidential elections ago, Andrew Yang talked about that a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and I think he was right. And, yeah. you know, we're having a hard time embracing many of the things he was talking about. He was talking about the role that automation is going to play. Yeah. And automation, again, to talk about military and consumer side. Um, yeah. And maybe he was a little bit ahead of his time, but he clearly um, was right. I mean, I actually I, I write for Forbes online and I wrote some columns about that. And I thought he was absolutely right. Then we gathered the data as to who was spending what. Now, will that change with the new budget? Yeah, but budget. Yeah, I think it will. But I also think that this whole idea of digital infrastructure is going to be important to both the military and corporate success. And we sometimes have a hard time understanding that. You know, when I teach the, the Gen Z students, they get it instantly, right? Yeah, of course. Right. You know, if you don't have cloud, you mentioned cloud, yeah. you don't have cloud and 5G, where's 5G? We talk a good game, but where is it? Right. So if you don't have cloud and 5G, how do you expect to have IoT? Yeah. I mean, and they get it like instantly. So I don't have to spend a nanosecond on that, Yeah. which is great. And then it's like, well, what are you going to do with it? 
and 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 how you're going to manage it because i understand that management's important as well they understand that you know social media needs to get managed they understand that beyond the challenge of unstructured versus structured data sure we get all that it's like what are you going to do with this stuff and now you're asking questions Okay, if these are legitimate arms races, which I believe they are, mm -hmm. AI and machine learning is an arms race. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do about it? You're going to fund the hell out of it. I mean, how are you going to how are you going to fund it? You're going to give DARPA a lot more money. You're going to give all the government agencies, the military, more, or are you going to subsidize? You know, we now have a space race, right, being conducted by you know two or three people. Mm -hmm. Odd, right? We used to have NASA. Right. You know, what happened there? NASA, JPL, and all the rest. And now we're like relying upon both. We rely upon who the Russians for space station stuff, and we rely upon two or three billionaires. Right. What? That's what my dad says. My dad was a manager of programs on the shuttle for many, many years through IBM. And then when he was at Boeing, he was on uh, station for many years. And it still blows his mind. He's retired now, obviously. Um, it blows his mind. He, you know, when he was a kid in the 50s, uh, it was this is such a big dream and this is such a big thing. And when he came out of the air force in the early sixties and we had an opportunity to go into these areas, it was, um, look, this is good for our country. It's good for my career. It's, this is a, it's a, it's, it's a big thing. And I'm, I'm wondering as you're talking, like, how do we change that? Do we do it through fear? There's benefits of that. There's also consequences of that. You know, we, um, there's a lot of things that we innovated because we were worried about, we were losing the quote unquote arms race against a, a competitor. Um, and, and now we're back to, uh, I don't know. I'm wondering how do we turn it? How do we capture the imagination of, let's just say our country to say, look, this is, this is legitimate. We don't want to lose marketplace advantage. We don't want to lose, um, com, you know, competitive, uh, um, perspective to anybody else. We want to benefit human flourishing and we don't want to, you know, have a risk to the safety and security of our country. So how do we do that without using fear? Or is that the only way really to it's not the only change? way? It's a great question. I think, so first of all, you know, DARPA was created by, um, from fear. Yeah. So Sputnik went up and Eisenhower said, we will never be technologically surprised again. We're right. going to create this elite organization that will, and that was where DARPA came from. It was called ARPA. It was not called DARPA, right. just ARPA. And he created that, I think, in 1958. I'm pretty sure that was the date. In any case, so that was fear. Right. But I, I think to your question, and, and I experienced this because I work with, uh, how do I say this? I work with older managers and i work with very young students right so what i what you've learned over the years we all have is something this thing called audience analysis so who am i selling to yeah so when i sell to the older executives without defining actual age um i use fear yeah you're gonna lose you're gonna lose your market share you lose your market share you lose your third house right uh, you know then they get really what what Okay, can't pay that tuition for your kid. You're going to have to get rid of the Ferrari. I mean, I'm exaggerating for purpose, of course. Right. And then when you talk to the students, however, it's very different. First of all, they can't conceive of fear as I'm describing it. Right. But they do understand working on really cool stuff. Yeah. I mean, when I show them, so the example I'll use at, at Villanova, because we, I have to say, we have two national championships in a relatively short period of time. You can say whatever you want. You're all charged. right. Thank you. I'm going to give as, as our dean would like <laughs> to say, the, the V's are now up. Okay. But, but um, no, 
if I said to somebody, so in one of the first championship, we had Chris Jenkins who met a buzzer shot, you know, buzzer beater. If I said, I say to the students, is there a business model with being able to be on the court as an avatar and experiencing all of that today with a headset, but of course in the future right. with, you know, AR will be augmented right. reality, be a lot smaller, be right. better in glasses like I'm wearing. Right. Is that a business model? You bet it is. What would you pay for it? Anything. Right. Can we develop that? Yes, we can. Now that's something that gets them so excited. Right. Being able to immerse themselves in a film. Right. right? Or, or a, a sports experience or a concert. They right. want to be on the stage. You name it. Right. So they will just, their minds are blown by now what's happening with these. You've seen these avatar groups that are dead that are coming. Michael Jackson's performing right in concert. Uh, Abba just recorded. I know. The, yeah unbelievable unbelievable right so i show them that the abba thing so yeah. they go wow so for them audience analysis for them it's like incredibly exciting things as they age they'll learn that this is a path to wealth <laughs> yeah and and you know let's be honest most of them will be that will appeal to most of them sure. not all of them because you need money to live in america and you want to live the good life and all the rest yeah but so fear doesn't take hold until they get to that point when they're 40s and 50s and 60s, then they start to understand things differently. So I think mm -hmm. for the younger people, it's about just the amazing coolness of some of these newer technologies that will enable them to have careers that will just keep them excited and occupied. I always say, because I teach the people that are majoring in technology, and I always say to them, um, when they complain about their internships, because the internships sometimes are with traditional companies and they do traditional things. I say, well, how would you like to have a career different than that? How would you like to go work on this one, that or that other thing? They go, wow, that would be so much better. Yeah. Um, startups are a little trickier because they, they're smart enough to know that 90% fail. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they may have student debt. Um, so they have to worry about some realities. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think it's excitement. I think the, the technology trajectory that we've seen over the past 10 years, obviously is unprecedented. One of my students just yesterday in class said to me, said, when do you think autonomous vehicles will be ready? Not deployed, mm -hmm. because we're going to have the insurance companies, the lawyers and all mm -hmm. the rest of it involved, and there'll be regulations. When will they be ready? I said, three to five years. He said, that's amazing. Um, I said, that's when the technology is ready. Technology adoption takes longer. And he said, why so fast? I said, well, why don't we ask the question differently? Where was it five years ago? Right. So just map the progress over five years, take five year increments, you know, Moore's laws aside. Right. And, you know, they're like, OK, you know, we, we buy it. Right. I mean, convolutional neural networks, one of the great image recognition technologies 10 years ago, wasn't really a thing. I mean, we had it conceptually. Right. Now we're applying it to autonomous vehicles. Yep. I mean, Tesla's relying on it. Did you I mean, see that Tesla announced their goal to build the largest supercomputer? Yeah. I, you know, we'll see if it actually happens, but to, to, to take the data, apply machine learning and AI and whatever, but I, yeah. So look at, so come, you said that Tim Cook said he wants to be a healthcare company. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think Uber wants to be? They want to be a technology company. They would love to get rid of their, I don't want to speak for Uber, maybe right. this is entirely true, but I would, I would surmise they'd love to get rid of their drivers and go to autonomous vehicles. Yeah. Because <laughs> the drivers are all the issues and all the problems.
Um, so what, what are they? they? They do. They have algorithms for surge pricing. Sure. They do, you know, geo-based location, all the rest of it. Uber is fascinating to me. They're the most one of the most interesting companies to me. me too. Challenges aside, they took this idea of mobility. Mm-hmm. And they did this. They disrupted a centuries-old industry, right. some mostly pro, some cons, but they disrupted that. They they have also added to their portfolio this idea of delivering food, as we talked about before, yep. maybe alcohol in the future. They're learning out how to do mobility in other countries. Can I get a rickshaw? Can I get a scooter? Can I get a bus? Can I get an autonomous vehicle? And I think also, Professor... At some point, what they'll say is here, you know, right now. So I Ubered to the office today and I have six choices. And one of the choices in the future will be, do you want the concierge? Do you want the boutique, which is a human's driving it? Do you want one where it's just the drone? Do you want to fly there? Just think when they get into vehicles that can fly you and all of the, all the tech, I mean, I just, it's really cool. Absolutely. I think there's a, a perfect example. I mean, Airbnb, the same sort of way, Verbo. I mean, they're all disrupting older industries and they're off. I mean, they're primarily technology driven. Let's be right. honest. And, and they're looking for ways to increase the application of technology. So when you think of healthcare, you think of education, look what happened during the pandemic when yeah. all the universities went to Zoom. I mean, we had to learn that. We did a great job. The students did a better job because they're young, right? right? So they adapted that stuff amazingly quickly. Um, graduate students, not so quickly. So all this does correlate with age, let's be honest. Right. And and so, you know, will that will there be permanent now online programs? We already had them before. Will they will they grow in number? What about office workers? Are they all going back to work? I don't yeah. think so. I don't think so. Yeah. Right. And do companies kind of like this because they're not paying for all that rented space that they were before? Hmm. There's so there's a lot of sort of you know in- interesting f- features to these new emerging models, otherwise known as what ways of working generation, you know, for the, for the new generations and you know industry 4.0. I I um uh, I know we're wrapping up our time here. I I will. I wanted to continue on this thing, but it, you just reminded me just briefly that there's a gal named Jennifer Wilde, and she talks about system innovation. I, she's, um, um, she's based out of, she's an Aussie, I believe, based out of New Zealand. But anyway, she was on the show and she was talking about, so she has a lot of experience in trying to innovate in the um, uh, area of human crisis. So she's worked for World Vision, a number of organizations, everywhere from Haiti to Syria and everywhere in between. And it's um, one of the things that she is optimistic and she, she holds your same perspective in if we don't change how we innovate and how we innovate systems and the level of complexities, we cannot keep doing it the way we've done it for the last hundred years. It will fail in every way we are failing. But I asked her for an example and she said, you know, in these Syrian refugee camps in Iraq and in other places, they're huge numbers of people and the parents sometimes the grandparents realize there's not a lot of opportunity for them but they have children you know mm-hmm. human beings being human beings they're still having children or whatever and so what can they do to help them they don't necessarily need a package of aid packed and delivered more e- efficiently or to incremental change how do we get water there quickly they do need water they do need support of course but she said a way to think about it differently is most of them believe it or not have some sort of cellular service Mm -hmm. if we can deliver learning 
to them from France, from America's chemistry, whatever, and change the opportunity for children who could be adopted into host countries where they're coming in with real skill, not having their lives decades just sitting in the desert or whatever the consequences. She's very passionate about it. Jaw on my lap talking about, look, there is opportunity, real positivity, but we need to think of innovation differently. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. That's an example of it. It's a perfect example. And that's systemic disruptive change. But what's interesting about the way you described it is it's within reach. Yeah. See, that's what is so frustrating to many people that are excited about innovation. You look at this, we can do this. I mean, why can't we do this? Then you start getting into the things we've talked about. So the bureaucratic obstacles. I mean, why, why does anybody prepare their taxes in the U.S.? For crying out loud. I mean, why do you have to search out the data? It's around, you can get it. It can be done for you. A friend reminded me in the U.K., it's, you know, it's a five-minute thing. You just sign it and send it off. Right. Um, there are so many industries where we have these layers, right, of process, not to mention layers of cost mm -hmm. that could be removed. Why do people go to car showrooms? Why does that even exist? I mean, there are so many of these. Why do you have a checkout person? Amazon Go is pioneering this for food stores. Why do you have to stop? Why can't you just walk out? Right. We can do these things. Right. And that's what's frustrating. And the obstacles to deployment, which is why incremental tends to work better than disruptive, is they're not technological obstacles. Yeah. They're social. They're personal. They're sometimes legal. There's all these things that we've tangled ourselves up in, right? Uh, the, I mean, you know, the, the tax preparation industry is mammoth and they have lobbyists. I mean, all this craziness, could it go away? Yeah, it could go away quickly. Right. I mean, so, so many examples like that. And no American, at least no Americans that I know are against, I'm going to use a word here that could be interpreted reasonable. Like, <laughs> how do I pay reasonable taxes? I want safety. Right. I want lights. Absolutely. I want all of these other things to remove from any bureaucracy. These other things talk about one of the other things my FBI buddy talked to me about was um, identity theft in particular around oh, yeah. income taxes. And he talked about, we don't have time to get into it, but he talked about all the different ways. And I'm thinking about all the way back to when we were talking about privacy and concierge. Well, I do want, whether it's my tax data or my healthcare data for it to be private, but I share it with my physician. I share it with my family member. I mean, there's people I choose to share it with, and I may even want to share it with um, a database that sanitizes maybe some things, my name or whatever, but puts me in a pool so I can leverage the benefit of that. And the way we're going to get there to your point in an economic way um, is using machine learning, AI, digitalization, getting these big data into these big data pools. And yet we have um, at least certainly people, I am, I don't even know I'm a baby boomer, I guess. Um, the res, you know, the resistance of no man, I don't, I don't want anybody to know that about me. What do you think they don't know about you? Like they, they know it all, but anyway, we could, we could keep going and going and going. I don't mind you reacting to that comment, but as you react to that and you think about, I know you're a positive person that you do believe you can affect change because you're still teaching and you're persuading um, Gen Z and soon Gen A. How, how would you wrap up conversations like this? Do you, um, 
you invigor people like, look, here's, here's the things you should think about, not just these consequences, but here's how I want you to look forward. Okay, so that's a great question. And when you say teaching, I always think of, actually, I think I don't like the word training, I like the word educating. Yeah, better than training, because I think anybody I mean, that's, that's why God made you to me, right? And just start, <laughs> that's right, you can get trained for these things. But I, I think um, there's not a there's, and this, this may be I want I always like to end on a positive note, although we talked a lot about a lot about positive things in this, yeah. in this uh, podcast, but um, there's not and this, this may bring it all down. <laughs> I'm not sure. But there's not a, a day that goes by when I say to myself, I can't wait for the machines to replace us. Because there are so many processes that are done imperfectly at best, right? Horribly at worst by humans. So mm. someone said to me, well, these autonomous vehicles, um, when they're widely deployed, they're going to kill like three, three or 400 people a year. And I then, and then I ask, well, how many do drunk drivers kill a year? Right. And how many do bad drivers kill a year? And we're in the tens of thousands, right? right. And they go, well, that's different. And I go, how is that different? It's not different. This is better, right? We now have evidence that, that MRIs in certain cases, many cases are read more effectively uh, by machines than they are by humans. So, I mean, it goes on and on. So, you know, I, I, what I try to t say to the students is, of course, there's a, you know, we'll start with hybrid AI combination, right, mm -hmm. of, of people and machines. But eventually, it's, it's actually a pretty good thing. So I guess I place myself at this opposite end of the spectrum from Elon Musk and Bill Gates and, and Ray Kurzweil and people like that that believe this is all a bad thing, right? The singularity right. is a bad thing. Right. I actually think there are so many what we now today refer to as narrow AI problems yeah. that we shouldn't be doing. We should be creating. We should be leveraging. We should be enjoying more as opposed to spending all of our time figuring out what happened to that thing I order on Amazon that I don't think came. I mean, all this crazy stuff or my taxes. I had people say to me, I'm consumed now by my taxes after the next three months. Like, that's how you want to spend three months of your life. Right. Right. I mean, just, so I want machines to come in and interrupt that, disrupt that. I want them to replace us doing these kinds of tasks so we can do other things. So in my AI and machine learning course, we spend a lot of time identifying just those things that occupy so much of our time uh, and energy that could be replaced by a machine. And the students, of course, love it because they go, of course, you know, I don't want to be doing this. I watch my parents do this and they're crazy. And it's like, so I don't want to do this. And they, they get it. So I think I think that's, you know, I'm an optimist when it comes yeah. to the application of machine learning. And I'm an optimist when it comes to the application of the newer technologies to innovation. I do appreciate the challenge of disruptive innovation for large, especially public corporations. I understand it and I appreciate it. And I think what you wanna do is, is not monster projects. You wanna do incremental. Maybe you acquire the disruptors <laughs> that may be disrupting your business. And, and I think that's how you solve that problem. Um, I'm a huge believer in investing in the startups that will deliver disruptive innovation. We talked about healthcare. There are plenty of other industry sectors um, that can be, you mentioned transportation, completely revolutionized, completely disrupted by these technologies. So I'm as optimistic as it gets for the next five to 10 years. We both, though, recognize the challenge of cybersecurity. Yeah. This is largely, in my view, an unmet challenge. Yeah. And I think the more we turn over to machines, um, the bigger the problem gets.
Yeah. So we've got to redouble, triple our efforts in, in funding for this. Um, eventually, it may become a battle of the bots, right? So my bot's smarter than your bot. Right. Um, oh, I think I, that's happening now. I do too. I yeah. know it is. But we need to do more. Yeah. We need to do much more. I, I, um, uh, there's, yeah, well, we're, we're at time. I just want to say one, two things, if you will indulge me. One is as it relates to security, there's this false sense, I believe in the public that, man, I don't want these things to steal my data. And what we've seen from several incidents just this year, they don't need to steal anything. They just need to stop data from flowing. If the gas doesn't move, if electricity doesn't work at your utility and you can't get your prescription or you can't, I don't need to take anything. And in many ways, the internet is so more spectacularly vulnerable than they understand. And I want the public, not from a fear perspective, but recognize you want to talk about job opportunities. You want to talk about jobs in the future. There's so many opportunity for so many people um, that but we need to be real about risk. So let's get real about risk. And it's happening in some places, but that's, um, I, I, I love that. And I am also um, an optimist. And there's a really interesting study or, or conversation in the 60s. Um, one of the universities in California helped to invest in a tomato picker and they were sued because they said you took public funds and you, yeah. you know, did this other stuff. And they made, and you displace people, what they found was the tomato picker caused tomato growers to create a hybrid tomato that could be easily picked. People were displaced at the fields, but most of them moved to the tomato sorting, a higher paying job. And it created a boutique industry for hand-picked soft tomatoes. And the overall, they won the the university and the the defenders won the lawsuit because they showed how much completely disrupted. We got cheap tomatoes in the store all these, and I'm not saying it's perfect in every way, but we have disrupted human beings since the beginning of time. And it's just the way it's going to be. It's exactly right. That's what that's called progress. Uh, I I also believe given what I do now is education is the key to that previous story you told about, you know, education being a leveler um, and now also creating the newer jobs. Education is the key. You know, a few years ago, STEM was all the rage. Mm -hmm. We need to make it all the rage again. Uh, continue with that. And I think we'll be just fine. Right. Professor, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. We will have links to your bio and to um, a number of the things we talked about today down below. Thank you so much. And uh, I hope you have a great semester. And you think the V is going to pull off a third championship? Absolutely. <laughs> There's absolutely. an optimist. Absolutely. <laughs> With our coach, Jay Wright, seriously, anything's possible. Uh, anything's possible. And on that note, we'll end it there. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, comment, and uh, we'll see you next time on the QTS Experience. Thank you, Professor. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye.